<laughs> been working our way through the Gospel of Luke together now for quite some time. It's, um, I think this is, I think this is sermon like 87 or something like that, and we'll end up over 100. So thanks for sticking with us through this. Um, it uh, hopefully, Lord willing, will be done by Advent. Um, and, uh, and what better thing than to come into Advent having just celebrated the ascension of Jesus? Uh, that's going to be amazing in December, Lord willing. Now, up till this point, over the last number of chapters, chapter 13 particularly, we begin to uh, hear something that Jesus is explaining to His disciples about why, as He'll say in future chapters, chapters past for us now, that He had set His face to go to Jerusalem. Now, why why Jerusalem? What's the big deal about Jerusalem, Jesus? Chapter 13, Jesus tells the Pharisees to communicate something to King Herod. You, you remember, He says, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons, and I perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, which is not specifically days, but in times to come, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from where? Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, just a few weeks away from us now, I don't know if you remember on Palm Sunday, I said, oh, I was tempted to go forward. Well, we're trusting, and I did not go forward. We're, we're coming to it here now in just a couple of weeks where actually people are going to cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Um, why had he set his face to go to Jerusalem? What will you know, don't you? We're, we're aware, it's just been in the earlier verses of chapter 9, that Jesus had stated something to His disciples that they had no idea about. He said this in chapter 9, verse 22, "'The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised.'" Pretty clear, disciples didn't get it. He stated again and later on in that chapter, verse 44, He says, "'Let these words fellas, sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then last week, Jesus stated it again for the third time, and He made it pretty clear, actually very, very clear. He says this in verses 31 through 33. So, if you are in Luke chapter 18 right now, you can just kind of look back there. Verse 31, He says, taking the twelve, He said to them, see, we are going to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging Him, they will kill Him, and on the third day He will rise. Now, we're not going to spend any time on that specifically, but the point that I'm trying to make in just like entering into this is Jesus knew exactly what He was doing. Jesus knew from eternity past what was going to happen. This was not 
Luke just kind of filling in the gaps. This is Jesus speaking beforehand of what was going to happen, that which was prophesied about back in Isaiah 53, hundreds of years prior. And Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem as the Son of Man to accomplish something. That something includes being handed over to the Gentiles, the Son of Man who has been given all authority. He is going to be handed over to the Gentiles to be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and flogged and killed, but also that he would rise again. There was no doubt. Jesus was going to Jerusalem not by happenstance. He, he wasn't going to Jerusalem with some sort of curiosity. He was going to Jerusalem with purpose to save you and to save me. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, Hebrews says in chapter 12. Chapter 9, he moved, began to move in real time and real space, not just from eternity past, in real time, in real space, as fully God, fully man, the Son of Man, towards Jerusalem. And for months he had been on his way, knowing all along what was awaiting him there. And so consider again, just for a moment, what was it that drove him there? Was it not his eternally intentional love for you? It was, and, and others, but for you, do you feel that personal love? He was in Jericho in this morning's text on his way to deliver himself to the Father's good plan to make a way for us to have eternal life. That's overwhelming. It was his intention to show mercy to his people. And not just to his people, to, to you this morning. Feel that eternal love. And we come in tired, and we come in distracted, and we're being told this morning, we have been loved, and we are loved and we will always be loved because we are in the beloved by the mercy of God. Now those closest to him who had walked with him and heard him teach and saw with their own eyes all that he did still could not grasp what he said. This is at the end of last week's text. They still couldn't see entirely. They had not been given eyes to see. Hear the, hear, hear the truth in that. They had not been given. They, they, it's some, for, for, for whatever reason, up until this point, they had not been given eyes to fully comprehend what was going on. They still couldn't see. They did not know why he needed to go to Jerusalem to do what? To do those? It just, they could not grasp it. They were left scratching their heads. The, the disciples were not blind physically. But at this point, they hadn't been given eyes to see Jesus entirely for who he truly was, as verse 34 speaks of. Perhaps, perhaps you are like those disciples this morning. In some manner, you've heard about Jesus, 
you've seen Jesus work in other people's lives, perhaps even in your own life in some manner, yet though you have seen him and perhaps though you have tasted his goodness in certain ways, you yet don't love him and you don't trust him, you don't believe in him, and you're left wondering about him, doubting him, disbelieving that he is who he says he is and he actually has done what he has said that he's going to do in this text. Uh, Don't feel bad about that. Welcome to the proverbial club of humanity. We need Jesus. We need Father, Son, and Spirit to open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so we pray, open our eyes that we might see Jesus. Turn my eyes towards Jesus. Help me to see Jesus. At this point in the gospel, it's true of the Pharisees that they don't see him, they don't understand him. The rich ruler of a few weeks ago, and even in some ways, the disciples who have seen him close up, all have physical sight, but spiritually are unable to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. But the story that Luke tells us of, immediately after making us aware of the disciples' blindness, is the story of an actually blind man who sees and understands more about Jesus than his disciples did at this point. It's a remarkable story. Let me ask you this question. Do you see what the blind man saw before he was healed of his blindness? Do you see what the blind man saw before he was healed of his blindness? Jesus intends us this morning to see that you must place your faith today in the person and work of Jesus the Messiah if you are to be saved. And to consider that seemingly simple Sunday schooly kind of statement, I want us to process the following three points from the message today. That you must know Jesus truthfully, that you must trust Jesus absolutely, and that you must follow Jesus immediately. Those are our three points. First point, you must know Jesus truthfully. Now, Jericho was about 17 or so miles northeast of Jerusalem. So if you're you're not looking at a map, Jerusalem's down here, and just to the right, Jordan River comes up here. Jordan, where Sassy is hopefully going to land later today or tomorrow, she's just miles away from Jericho, this ancient city. Records indicated that there was some sort of city of Jericho 8,000 years before Christ, give or take some number of years. It's an old settlement. Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. And to get to Jerusalem, Jesus was going to have to go through. You, you remember that Jesus had been skirting through, kind of around Samaria, through Samaria partially, but then around, and then down. He's coming down and going to enter into Jerusalem via Jericho. So he's gone down below sea level, and that's where he is in our text. And he's going to come out in a week's time um, in the text up into Jerusalem, which is the city on the hill, Mount Zion of the earth. In Mark's account, there's this guy. Well, in this account, there's a guy sitting at the gate who, or at, in Jericho who is blind, and he's asking for money. And in Mark's gospel, we recognize the name Bartimaeus. Uh, he mentions that this guy's name is Bartimaeus. Now, Luke doesn't 
give us any indication of who he is because the story's not primarily about Bartimaeus. Um, the story's about Jesus. And so Luke's, Luke's, remember Luke's reason for writing? Uh, it's not just to tell nice stories um, that, that kind of fill your faith with healings and whatever. It's stories to tell Theophilus to, to, assure, to, to help create increasing certainty in Theophilus about all the things he had heard about Jesus. And so this is what we come to this morning. Not the blind man primarily, but what the blind man testifies of or gives testimony of. The, the passage makes it very clear that Jesus is the Messiah. He is, as the blind man says, he is the son of David. Messianic title. The story is not complicated. There's, there's that beggar sitting by the roadside in Jericho. We've seen, we've seen people beg on the side of the roads. We've seen people at corners down on Wayne and um, Kiwi and wherever, wherever you go. We've seen people they're begging for food or money. On top of that, it was just a, a very good thing, this, this, this beggar to, to be there, because as people were trekking through Jericho to go into Jerusalem for the Passover, it was a very righteous thing, a pious thing for the Jerusalems to give alms, to give um, uh, money to this guy. And, and literally, there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that would be going through Jericho. So you think about the lucrative business this guy had. I mean, he was, he was going to probably get some, some cash. So Bartimaeus, here's a commotion. Somehow he knew there was something beyond just the normal rush of visitors walking through Jericho. There was a, some sort of commotion. There was some sort of crowd happening who was coming. And, and, and he asks, what's going on? And they said, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Now, how many Jesuses there were is unknown, but it was a common enough name, right? If it was just one of the many Jesuses passing by, okay, whatever, it's not a big deal. But this was Jesus of Nazareth, and Bartimaeus knew about Jesus of Nazareth. This was not any hundreds of potential Jesuses. It was none other than the one from Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. He had been well known, and while this blind man couldn't see physically, his perceptions were awakened in that moment, and he's like, oh my word, that's Jesus of Nazareth, and he does not simply cry out to Jesus of Nazareth, oh Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. What does he say? Purposely, he says, Jesus, son of David have mercy on me. He recognizes Jesus is not just a guy, a teacher, a whatever. He is the son of David, the Messiah. He knew that somehow. And it's at this point that Luke wants us to stop and look. We just kind of read through it. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what else does he say? And, and we, we pick up the little contextual evidences, whatever. But Jesus would have a stop and consider his identity. To see clearly that there's something this blind man is pointing out that the Pharisees and the rich man, and even the disciples to some point, were unable to see, though their eyes were just fine. 
The minute the beggar cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, what, what happens? Disciples are like, be quiet. Go sit down. Or if you're sitting down, just be quiet. Leave him alone. They began to rebuke him. Those were the disciples, again, recall from just a few weeks ago in verses 15 through 17 when we were talking about the children and the children were coming to him. And what did the disciples do? Same, same thing. Leave the children, get the children away from Jesus. And Jesus is saying, stop, guys. Let the little children come to me. The disciples, though, rebuked them, told them to buzz off, leave Jesus alone. And here the disciples go again. Buzz off, blind beggar man, and leave Jesus alone. To the disciples, to the people that were closest to Jesus, this man was an outcast. He was a nobody. He, he was an expendable crewman. He was not important enough, just like the children of a few weeks ago, just like the lepers we've seen in other stories, just like the tax collectors, just like the prostitutes and any of the other notorious sinners, people who had no right to come to God, had no right to be in the temple, had no right to be before Jesus of Nazareth. And yet the blind man doesn't give up because this is not just Jesus of Nazareth. This is Jesus, son of David. I must get to him. I must know him. I must see him. He knows something so surely about Jesus that it causes him to cry out all the more. Son of... So you imagine the, the, the disciples are rebuking him. Be quiet, be quiet. He's yelling out louder and louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And at that point, after the second time he cries out, we're told that Jesus stops. So Jesus is in the middle of the crowd. He's walking, walking through, and he hears this guy, and he stops. Verse 40, and, and what does he do? Rather than responding the way he did with the disciples in verses 15 through 17, telling his disciples, hey, let him come, he actually says, get that man here. He commands them to bring him to him. Something is significantly different about this man. Something is specifically important about what this guy's saying, what he saw. You might remember um, back in the day, Peter had this moment of, of, of um, uh, providential brilliance when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Pretty important. In this situation, this is some blind beggar in the middle of Jericho. Nobody knows about, except there's a, it's a guy named Bartimaeus that we figure out. But, but he sees, even though he's blind, he knows Jesus is the Messiah. This Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. So he commands them to bring the blind man to him because this blind man, though he could not see him physically, saw something about Jesus the disciples had not yet seen fully. He knew something, he believed something about Jesus that everybody in that crowd needed to understand and you and I need to understand this morning afresh. But what he understands, again, I've said it four times already, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. The, the Son of David is a messianic name from the Old Testament. This man is acknowledging that Jesus is not just a great prophet or teacher. He's, he's not. He's, he's the one who is appointed by God. He's the one who is anointed by God. He is the one prophesied of by the prophets of the Old Testament that God was sending in the world to have mercy on his people. 
They were waiting. Remember back in Luke chapter 2, there was, there was this waiting for this consolation, this, this Messiah to come. And so we got these two older people at the beginning of Luke who are, who are cr- crying out day and praying for, this, for Jesus, to, for the, for the uh, Messiah to come. And he comes, they recognize him. Bartimaeus recognizes him. Though he couldn't see him, by faith he knew him. And he believed on him. And so he begins to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. My my question, one of the questions this morning is, what do you believe about Jesus? It's ironic, really, that this blind man can truly see before he can see. And those who could see him before their very eyes could not truly see him for who he is. Do, do you see him for who he is? Disciples of Jesus, genuine disciples of Jesus, believe that he is the son of David, that he is the Messiah, that he's not just a great moral teacher, he's not just a good man, he's not just an important guy that somehow religiously we need to believe in in some manifestation so that we can maybe get right with God if it's all true. He's not just someone who did nice things. He's not even just the miracle worker. And he's not the excuse to gain credibility for whatever social or political movement that's out there. He is Jesus the eternal Son, the Messiah, undiluted by anything this world deems important. He is the hope for the lost. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of sinners. He is the one in whom rest and salvation is found alone. And all those who would follow him do so as those who have received him as that Messiah, as that Son of David, as that suffering servant of Isaiah 53, as the King of glory, the one to whom all praise is due, and the one in whom all hope is found, both in forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This is the point that Jesus wants us to see in this passage. He is who he says he is. This blind man knew. Do you know? Is Jesus just a category of religious speak? Or is he the son of David, the son of God, the savior of the world? What do you believe this morning, no matter how long you've been in this church or in church in general? What is it you believe this morning? What is it that stokes your heart? You, you, may, you may argue until you're blue in the face about all sorts of theological difficulties, but there is no debating who Jesus is or what he's come to do. Jesus is a very clear historical figure, no doubting whatsoever. Argue about all sorts of stuff. Come Come back to Jesus and ask the question, what does Jesus say about himself and what does he accomplish? Right here. He is the son of David, the Messiah, the savior of the world, and the only way to be right with God is through him. That's what he wants us to see this morning. Do you know Jesus truthfully? Not just categorically. You must know this Jesus. the Son of David, the Messiah, the Savior, if you are to be saved. Second observation, you must trust Jesus absolutely. There's there's a way to know about Jesus, but yet not trust him. 
not have faith in him. You know, you got these categories of Jesus, and you kind of believe it. You always have. You grew up in church, and you're just like, well, I just always kind of believe in Jesus. There's, there's, there's something more that Jesus wants us to see here. Jesus wants to highlight that truly knowing him results in absolutely trusting him. When the man is brought to Jesus, he asks him a question. He asked him, what do you want from me? And the man does not say, I want money, although he certainly wanted money, right? Generally, that's why he was there. I want food. Uh, One of the reasons why he's there, he's a beggar. But what does he say? He says, I need mercy. I want to see again. And you, son of David, see, he knows who he is, so he knows that if anyone's going to do it, it's him. This blind man didn't just know about Jesus generally. He had faith in him. He believed he was the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God, the son of David, and he believes that Jesus can give him sight. He is the one who gives him mercy, and he knows that because it's what the Messiah came to do. See, this guy knows stuff. How he knows stuff, I don't know. He grew up in Israel, so probably he just knew stuff. But there was a supernatural knowing here as well. He knew what the Messiah came to do, as Jesus himself had said back in Luke chapter 4, when he says, out of Isaiah 61, the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and what? Recovering of sight to the blind. He was putting two and two together, He's like, the son of David does that. And he knew Jesus was the son of David, so he was like, this is my day. This is a good day. This man believes this very thing about Jesus, even though he still has not laid eyes on him. He didn't see the powerful, loving, kind, sympathetic eyes of Jesus like others did. He had not experienced his touch. He knew of Jesus But he didn't simply know of him, he knew him truthfully. And that erupted into a very real and absolute dependent trust of Jesus. We've seen that throughout Luke of people like that, that people who are outcasts, don't have anything. The world looks down on them. They even look down on themselves, but Jesus looks them in the eye and says, come. He believed this blind, he, blind man, he, he believed not just in Jesus, but he believed on Jesus. He, he placed his faith in him, and he was healed. Now, what is it that Jesus is drawing our attention to here? It seems that, at least in some ways, he's drawing our attention to this man's faith. True faith, true trust active belief, trusting in Jesus as the son of David, the Messiah. The the blind man's faith was not the source of his healing. The object of his faith was. He trusted in the one who alone could grant mercy, who could save, who could heal. He was was not a double-minded man that cried out to Jesus for mercy, but really didn't believe him to be the Messiah. He believed him to be the Messiah, and he cried out for mercy. And what did he get? He was not double-minded. James says, don't be double-minded in you asking for wisdom, because if you ask like a double-minded man, you should not 
believe that you'll receive anything. So listen, friends, do you know Jesus? And, and, and the way to know if you know Jesus is and really, and really know Jesus, like know him, truthfully, you will respond in faith, believing him, trusting him for everything he says, for all the promises of God that are yes and amen in the son of David. You, you can know much about Jesus, but not place your faith in him and therefore not be saved. You remember the well, frightening verse in James chapter 2 where it says, you believe, brothers and sisters, that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Just don't hang your hat on your knowledge of Jesus if it does not result in faith in Jesus and trust in him. What Jesus draws our attention to is that this man didn't just know who Jesus was. His faith and trust was placed on him. He was dependent on him. He trusted him. His belief had the teeth of true faith and trust, and he was healed. So question again, do you know Jesus? And the proof you truly do know him is in if you trust him and believe on him and all the promises that are yes and amen in him. He, this man was, was literally blind, but he saw Jesus for who he was. He believed on him, placed his hope in him, and he received God's blessing. He did not receive his blessing again because he mustered up some sort of faith, some sort of, some sort of belief in something he's not entirely sure about. Oh, he was sure. He did not get healed because he earned it in some fashion. He was given eyes to see, and he believed, he trusted. Paul says in Ephesians 2, right, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, but it is a what? Say it loud. A gift. It's a gift of God. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul says, to you it has been granted to believe. The mercy of our God. The, the blind man knows and believes in Jesus, trusting completely in him, and he is healed. But the emphasis of this text is not on the healing primarily. It, it, it might seem as though the healing is the big deal, but it's in the Christ in whom this blind man absolutely trusts. And the fact that every disciple, every believer of Jesus believes on Jesus, not only for healing of the body, but more importantly, for the healing of the soul, for the salvation of our souls. Fear not the one who can just destroy the body, but he who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus is the one we need mercy from, the son of David, and so we run to him, fully believing that if we trust in him, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be what? Say it out loud. Saved. Same word, incidentally, is healed. Westminster Shorter Catechism asked this question, what is faith in Jesus Christ? It's question 86, and he says this, or they say this, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace 
whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. Followers of Jesus receive and rest upon Jesus alone. You receive and you rest. You believe and you trust. You believe who he is and what he's done, and you put all your hope and confidence and trust in him for the healing of not only your body, but of your soul as well. And that belief does not necessarily, it is something that continues to grow. It has its peaks and valleys, right? But there's a, there's a trajectory as, as those of us who know Jesus in increasingly more and more, which behooves us to get to know Jesus more and more and believe all the promises. How is it that one becomes a disciple of the Son of David? How is it that one becomes a disciple of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah? You receive and you rest. You believe and you trust on him. You recognize him as the son of David. You recognize him as the son of man. You recognize him as the son of God. And you believe and you trust on him. And Luke wants us to see that. And Jesus wants us to see that as well. And so again, do you know Jesus. Because again, you'll only, you, you know if you only truly know Jesus truthfully if you place your faith in him absolutely. Not perfectly, but absolutely nonetheless. This, this, this guy did not have perfect faith but he trusted in the perfect one. Sometimes answers to difficult circumstances are hard to come by, but you know Jesus and you trust him, though you cannot see him. And so do you believe him? Do you trust him? And do you know him? This last week, last weekend, Joy and I were in Breckenridge, Colorado, and we were there for a, a, a wedding on, on Saturday, and I think it was Friday night at the rehearsal dinner, we started hearing some stories of the grandparents. And if you ever get a chance, to, which, which take the opportunity to, I mean, if you're over 70 in this room, I think there's only a few of you, these people have stories, stories of real hardship and real faith in Jesus. Take the time to sit there's some of you in this room that are in your 50s, some of you are in your 30s, and you've had significant hardships. Now, one way to grow in your love for Jesus and your trust in Jesus is to hear the faith and the trust in Jesus and, and those who are, have gone before you. So, community groups, take opportunity to talk with one another and to hear each other's stories, not just the happy stories, difficult stories. Jesus is in the difficult stories. This guy, this one um, older man, he's in his 80s. Uh, he's, a, he's a hog farmer and, and, um, and corn and soybean farmer as well for 55, 60 years in Holland, Michigan. About 55, and he's, he's known Christ for decades now. Very quiet man. Um, about 55 years ago, he was on the farm and he had brought in a truckload of dirt, and uh, he, had, he had three kids at the time. One was a three-and-a-half-year-old boy, and 
three and a half year old boy had a uh, lazy eye and so they put a put a patch over one eye just to kind of straighten out the other and and so he could only see you know partially and they think this is what the issue was but this little boy he was he, he um the dad had the truck come in dumped a bunch of stuff in his truck went to dirt and then his dad got in the truck and took off the little boy had gotten in front of the wheel and he ran over his son killed him immediately. Now you might imagine there was a faith struggle in this man. How in the world could you let this happen? Why? Or the daughter that he had who was fine until one and a half years old and then developed a sickness that ended up causing her some sort of brain damage and neither he or his wife have ever actually heard a word from her. She's now 52 and in a home, getting help. All she does is kind of rock back and forth. Or the years that the farm didn't produce, or disease came, destroyed the harvest, or was ruined by weather. And the stories just went on and on and on, and I only heard, I'm sure, a snippet of them. So you can imagine the whys and what fors that he had. Uh, cried out to God during those days, Nevertheless, he was sure to state to me emphatically that though he had questions, he never lost his faith in a good God. Now, what accounts for that? But the mercy of God to open this man's eyes, to trust a good and loving Savior. He knows Jesus truthfully, and he trusts him absolutely, imperfectly, but absolutely, nonetheless, even amid all the questions. He cries out with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. Job's life was miserable during this time. This man's life was miserable during this time, and he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I trust him. The blind man could have been totally ticked off with God and cursing him to his face for giving him this blindness, but instead, instead he knew who Jesus was, and he trusted him amid the darkness, and he cried out for mercy. Friends, that's the essence of faith, of belief. That is the foundation and core of our salvation, not just at the beginning of our journey, but each day of our lives. We're, we're tempted to doubt, but this story compels us to look to Jesus and trust him no matter the circumstances. What, what are your circumstances today that are causing you to doubt? Jesus would have you turn to him, look to him, know him, and trust him. We're told in Hebrews 11 that without faith, it's impossible to please him, please God. The story draws attention to and calls us to have that very faith in Jesus that doesn't only just assent to some sort of theological truth, but where our lives are laid out in absolute dependence. To know Jesus truly is to believe on him fully. To know Jesus truly is to believe on him fully to be with us and for us, guiding us, keeping us, clinging to us, saving us, preserving us, and that compels us to trust him for all of his promises, even ones that we don't see, the ones we're not sure about, the ones that sometimes we wonder what in the world's going on. 
and we simply trust him because he is good. We believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, so we trust him, and we present our bodies to him as what kind of sacrifice? Say it out loud. A living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable act of worship. It's what Jesus is getting at when he says stuff like, this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. May our eyes be open to see and our hearts to understand. Do, do you know Jesus truly? Do you trust him completely, absolutely, imperfectly, but fully? Third observation, briefly, you must follow Jesus immediately. When we see Jesus for who he is and we believe in him by faith, there is a resultant visual effect on one's life. We follow him. We do not do so haphazardly or eventually, but immediately and ongoingly. And this story is placed here to help us see this reality more clearly. Jesus says to this guy, recover your sight, your faith has made you well, and what did what did, we, what did we read next in verse 43? Immediately he recovered his sight, so boom, just like that, and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Once again, we're brought to the immediate result of true faith. And once, the, the once blind man who had been given sight does not lollygag. He does not think about it. He is engaged. He has been given eyes to see, and he follows him immediately. And we've seen this before, haven't we? When, when Jesus calls his disciples, he says, follow me. And what do they do? They drop everything and follow him. And, 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 and let us not get caught up in the generalities of they dropped everything. They, they, they left. They left everything and followed him. It's the language of discipleship. This man became a disciple of Jesus. The, the people in front of Jesus thought he was unimportant. They thought he was so unlikely to be a disciple of God, it wasn't even on their radar, and so they were rebuking him for crying out to Jesus. But Jesus called him to himself, healed him, and he made him his disciple. This is what Jesus has done for the last almost 2,000 years. He, he tracks down his own. He gives them faith. He calls them to himself, and he saves them. He heals them. He calls them to follow him, trust him, and obey him. And those who know Jesus truthfully trust him absolutely and follow him immediately, glorifying God, living for him, him, doing whatever they do for the glory of God, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. And those around who see the genuineness of that faith, not just a spiritual kind of existence, but truly knowing Jesus and, and truly trusting him and believing him, lives are changed. And what happens? People outside say, that person's been with Jesus, that, that, that person, that person there, I see their good works and I give glory to God the Father for what he's done in their life rather than just mediocre spirituality that people are run away from. But listen, even when you're running away, and perhaps there's some of you this morning that are running away from Jesus, whatever your reasons are, if you are his, he will come after you. 
He will bring you back to himself. He will call you to follow him with a life that honors him in absolute trust and happy obedience. He is after you. He came to seek and to save who? The lost. Blind man was an unlikely convert, destitute and dependent, but he saw something about Jesus that most other people in that crowd did not see, and he by faith became a follower of Christ. And the picture that Luke keeps showing us that it's the unlikely, it's the overlooked, it's the unimportant, the, the, the ones who don't seem to have it all together, the rough around the edges, who are the ones whom Jesus regularly saves and calls to follow him, people like you and people like me. And consider just for a moment before we head to the conclusion that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. So this man picks up to follow Jesus in what amounts to the last two weeks of his life. He's going to see some brutal things take place. But he follows him. He trusted Jesus. The blind had been given sight, the captive and oppressed liberated. This is what Jesus did, and this is what he does today. And among those who know Jesus truthfully, trust him absolutely, and follow him immediately, well, all we have to do is read the book of Acts to see men who turn the world upside down. Not just men, but the fact that the God that was in them, the, the God that was at work in them, the Spirit of God was working and such. They believed in Jesus so much. They trusted in him so much, absolutely. They, they knew him well, truthfully, they, they believed and trusted him absolutely, and, and what happened? They followed him, and what happened? The world was turned upside down, and today we're preaching the gospel, this same gospel in Dayton, Ohio. You must place your faith today in the person and work of Jesus the Messiah if you're to be saved. Don't kid yourself that you, can't, that you don't have to do that. You have to place your faith today in the person and work of Jesus the Messiah if you're to be saved. There are many things that vie for our focus at this church, but we only have one message, and it's this. What, what you believe about Jesus is of paramount and eternal importance. Each of us believes something about Jesus and, and live and move and have our being every day in that belief or rejection. The, the question is, is what we believe about Jesus what this blind man declares? It's vital for us to come to terms with this very thing, to come to terms with the message that's on our lips. Is it the message about Jesus and faith in Him? Is that what's on our lips? Is that what's in our hearts? Is that what's on our minds? Or has it become something else? In a time when the church is being pulled into all sorts of cultural debates, being expected to speak into this important thing and that important thing, the Apostle Paul would remind us of what is primary for us as a church family. He says this halfway down this passage, for Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach what? Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is what we preach. This, this is what our focus is. We, we th have to think about certain things in this, in this land and try to address them, but 
But man, we will have to be known for one thing, and that is Christ crucified. May that be the thing that's on our lips. One thing, one thing alone. It was, it was that that was on the lips of this blind man. I wonder if it's the same thing that's on our lips today. It's our intention and strong desire, again, as your pastors, to keep this message, the one undiluted message that runs like a scarlet thread through everything we do and say. The story is rather simple. Jesus on the road to Jericho heals a blind man. Um, we've heard this story plenty of times, but friends, the story is anything but simple. It's absolutely jam-packed with significance. The question is, do you see the significance? What is it that you see in this story? What is it that Luke is intending to communicate to Theophilus? What the Spirit intends to communicate to you and I this morning? The, the point is, is simple. It's easy to miss, though, but it's this. You must place your faith today in the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah, if you're to be saved. This is the message that you may have grown to assume too much, too common for you, too, again, Sunday schooly. Most of us have heard this message for years now, and yet it's become so dull to us when it is the most glorious news ever. It is the message that we have to share, but we have kind of put it in a commonplace kind of category, assumed, but it's very clear that what this blind man believes and says about who Jesus is and what he's done is of paramount importance and worth our consideration this morning and every morning for the rest of our lives. It's why Luke picks this story among all the stories that he must have heard to place in this specific part of today's journey to Jerusalem. It's why Jesus himself stops in this moment and engages in conversation with this blind man. Surely he stopped on other occasions. Why just Bartimaeus? Well, because he wants us to see something specifically. So let me ask you one more time this morning. Do you see what the blind man saw before he was healed of his blindness? And is what you see and know about Jesus, what you've received from Jesus, namely forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, producing a life of increasing faith and trust in Jesus that results in an immediate and ongoing life that follows Jesus for the praise of his glory in your workplace and in your family and in your community group and in your uh, quiet times and on your vacations. Saving faith is not past faith. It's not a legalistic self-righteousness, but it's a present and future faith that works itself out through love, Galatians 5, 6, both in the church and in this broken world we live in. Do you know truly Jesus? Do you truly trust Jesus, church family? Do you follow Jesus? You cannot answer yes to one and not the others. It's yes to all three, or no to all. And the call that Jesus places before us this morning when we're honest with ourselves and recognize failure in any area is to repent of our lack, to believe on Jesus who is perfect. He always lived in perfect obedience to God. Believe on him, who he says he is, what he's done, 
the one who is our gracious Savior and Messiah and Lord, and we rest on him, and we believe in him, and we trust him, and we walk in obedience by the Holy Spirit who will cause us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, freed, forgiven, healed, saved, and eagerly awaiting the day that our faith will become sight and we enjoy him forevermore. May it be so in this church family and all the more so across this globe for the glory of God and for our eternal joy.